You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, as is our custom as a church, to open the Bible together and let the, the rest of our time together, uh, at, at least the, for this particular portion as I lead us through this, uh, to be a time of reflection upon the Scripture and let God speak to us through it. And I want to invite you to Psalm 146. And, and as is our custom in the, in the summers to walk through the Psalms, uh, we want to kind of carry on with that. And, and we'll be in one of the last of the Psalms, the 146 of 150. If you don't have a Bible on you, do me a favor and please either make your way to a Bible through a, a device or, or you'll see a Bible on the, in, in the chair uh, that's beneath you or... or chair, yeah, under the chair in the rack or the one in front of you, you'll figure it out. And I want to invite you to open there. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. The Psalms is about in the middle of the Bible, and we're going to be in the last bit of the Psalms, the 146th Psalm. And and this, as you'll see, as the rest of the Psalms, starting in Psalm 146, is what are known as the Hallelujah Psalms. That is the the Hallels, the Halals of the Psalms. The, The conclusion of the Psalms, as they are arranged, ends in, quite literally, like Handel's Messiah, a chorus of hallelujah. Now, I'll say more about what that means, but we are compelled to and invited to praise God, which is the literal meaning of hallelujah. So as we've been walking through the Psalms, my invitation to you is to kind of maybe like think about what we're doing when we read the Psalms is is this. This is, in essence, this is like a 3,000-year-old, 150-track playlist, and and in it, we're, we're meant to reflect upon who God is and what God has done. As we saw before, the, the Psalms give us the anatomy of faith. There is, there is no experience in the life of faith that isn't articulated, that is put to words, inspired even, to, to be spoken in the Psalms. Every single experience that you and I have, even including the majority of the Psalms, which are laments, which are crying out to God in complaint, God, come restore And so the Psalms are the language of faith. They help us think about, like I shared this with you a couple weeks ago, like if you, if you wanted to learn how to, to, to relate to someone, maybe like, a, like your spouse, I, you should read Shakespeare's sonnets, right? And you'll be like, oh, this is the kind of language that I should be using with my spouse, right? It's the language of love. And, it, it, and throughout the Psalms, we find that this is the kind of language that believers are invited to use with respect to God. The title of this playlist, in essence, is God. And the life of faith includes learning how to, by means of these poetic and, um, and rhythmic and rhyming and, and beautiful metaphorical language, we get the language of who God is and what God is like. And so the end of the Psalms, the crescendo, the hallelujah chorus, quite literally, is that we are invited, compelled, and I'll even make a case this morning, commanded to praise God who is worthy of it. So I'm going to read you all 10 verses of Psalm 146, and we'll begin to reflect on them together. Beginning in verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust 
in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. The sojourners, he upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. I pray that that invitation and exhortation to praise God rightly would become more than just words on the page for us this morning, but they would be the very invitation of God himself to his people. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You see that phrase at the beginning of each of the rest of the Psalms, and you see the beginning and end of this particular Psalm. It's the frame around which right praise is offered to us. And it starts with a declaration, exclamation mark, right? Praise the Lord, and then ends, praise the Lord, as if we might forget somewhere along the line what it is that we're meant to do. Praise the Lord. And the first thing I want you to see here is that the, the kind of the path that this psalm takes us on of right praise invites us to think about what wrong praise looks like in light of what true praise to a God who creates all things and sustains and redeems all things ought to look like. So I'll start here and I'll land here. We will praise God forever. If you think in terms of the language of faith, what does it mean to speak in the language of faith? This is what the psalmist tells us. We're, we will praise God forever from the depths of our souls because God is the eternal creator and redeemer. And so you might see kind of three main sections, maybe five, the beginning and end, the, the opening command to praise and a closing command to praise. And, and then this middle section that kind of builds, like if you remember this, if we were walking through the Judges, and if you're an OT scholar, an Old Testament scholar, as you've been hanging around with us, maybe more and more, right? The structure here is potentially chiastic. All you nerds are like, woo, nailed that one, right? That is that the central theme is in the middle, structurally. Now, now the Western literature tends to build and kind of the, the climax is toward the end. But in Hebrew literature, the, most Eastern literature, the, the climax or the main thrust is in the middle. And so we're meant to see this building action of words of wisdom about what you shouldn't trust in or worship because it will die. There's no help, quite literally, it tells us, verse 3 and 4, such that the blessing comes from knowing and trusting and worshiping the God who created all things and the God who restores and redeems all things. The words of wisdom that, as it, as it builds, saying there's no help over here, we're, we're kind of wrapping up in the end of the psalm saying, but help is over here. Did you get that list of things that God helps all of these list of, this list of, all the people on this list of specific needs? So we're invited to, if you see that, right in the middle in verse 5, to experience blessing 
the kind of blessing, think happiness, joy, contentment, satisfaction, hope. All the good that we could experience from the very heart of God is found when we find our help in God. And we hope in the Lord, that is the all four caps, you see that word Lord there in some of your translation, Yahweh, the, the God that is. And when we make God our help and make God our hope, the God who made everything and sustains everything, holds it all together, that's when we find real blessing and hope. Now, notice this language at the end of the Psalms is almost identical to the language at the beginning. You'll remember, if you haven't seen it already, for as we walk through this, go look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and the language of blessing starts out the Psalter such that we find blessing in God and ruin apart from Him in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and you see that same language kind of wrapping up all of the Psalms. So blessing comes from the command to praise God rightly and not trust in anything else. So let's begin at the beginning. Praise the Lord. And at the end there, right? Praise the Lord. And what, what you'll find here is that word is quite literally the Hebrew word hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's a very difficult, uh, it's a difficult, it's one word kind of with two parts, you would say maybe in the Hebrew, but it's hard to translate. And I'll, I'll show you why. The first is that it is a Second person, plural, imperative. So there's a few pieces going on. It's speaking you, plural. There's the first hard part, right? This is one of the weakest parts of the English language is that there is no uh, real second person, plural. And so we just kind of resort to uh, regional colloquialisms, right? And, and they'll either make sense to you or they'll sound off, right? They just sound disgusting, right? And so you know what these are. They're you guys, youans, or y'all, Right? And part of it is like, eh, that's, that doesn't make sense. Hey, it's just, that's not that person's regional, that's not their region's fault. That's, it's English language fault. So the first thing is when it says, praise the Lord, it's speaking you plural. So more literally, hey, you all praise the Lord. The second thing is it's imperative. That is, it is a command. It is commanding, telling someone what to do. So in that sense, like the, at the beginning of what part of our liturgy or, or our, the way that we respond, we think, or operate as a church when we come together, is at the beginning, you heard, we are called to worship. And, and someone stands up here and politely opens the Bible and invites you to praise God, right? But more biblically or more literally, they shouldn't, hey, let's praise God. They should be like, you all better praise God. That's the imperative and the second person, plural, saying, hey, you all, when someone says hallelujah, they are telling you what you do. They're saying, you all praise the Lord. So hallel, the, the root there is praise, or hallel, right? And then the yah is, a, is, a, is, is meant to be kind of like a, a little abbreviation for the name of the ineffable God, Yahweh. So hallel, praise you, God. Hey, you all, right? If I were to read this more colloquial, hey, you guys, praise the Lord. And then he turns in that command, right? That's, that, that's meant to be the language of the Psalms that you and I look at one another regularly and go, whoa, 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 you guys need to praise the Lord. And mainly because we're so prone to praise lesser things. And we'll find out more about that starting in verse three. But then he turns to himself. And this is a, remember I told you last week, the, the, the we of worship is something that we take very seriously. But here we're meant to see kind of like the, the me invited to individually. Now, here's where it says that. It says, praise the Lord. So that same phrase, but it's not hallelujah. It's not the same you plural. He's speaking now you singular. And he's speaking. Did you hear what he's speaking to? His soul. <laughs> he's commanding his own soul to praise God. 
Now, in Hebrew literature, that word soul is a, is a, it's a word pregnant with meaning. It, the best way I would describe it is like your inmost being, like your deepest being, your truest, most, and I don't mind using modern language here, your truest, most authentic self. So if you're here in this room this morning, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer. That's probably language that whether you mean to or not, you're quite familiar with, right? One of the, most, one of the highest ideals that, that we exalt right now as a culture is authenticity, right? And that's, and that's why if you're, if you're like above Gen X, if you're a, a Gen Xer or above a boomer in the room, that's why you're kind of scared of millennials and Xers because they're, they're trying to find the real you. And you feel that. You're like, whoa, what's this about, Right? And even now, if I gave you, for some of you, younger, the more younger you are in the room, the more you identify with this, I could say the most profound and wise thing on earth, and you would dismiss it if you thought I was being fake. And so we're obsessed with authenticity. And if you come in this room, and maybe that, that resonates with you, right? And you're like, I want to find or know or express my truest self. I want to commend you. That is, that is a good thing. That is a noble thing. We're commanded here to speak words of command and expectation of praise to our deepest self. But here's the thing. If, if your inmost being, like in the innermost level, think about it, like who are you at the innermost level? Have you discovered it? One of the, one of the most incomplete parts of that, though, and, and this is where I want to compel you, is, hey, when you find out about your innermost self, when you discover your authentic self, when you find your true self, what are you going to do with it? The problem is that we think that once we've found our innermost being, our truest self, that we've accomplished something. We haven't. Maybe just a step towards it. It's just the starting point for the real meaning of life, which is glory. Praise to God. So, have you found yourself? Good for you. Excellent. Now take that self and lay it on the altar for God's glory. Friend, go find yourself. Find your true, authentic self. You're, I'll warn you now, you won't like what you find. Right? You, it's going to be troubling. You're, that's, you're like, Ugh. But here's the thing. You weren't ever meant to have satisfaction in that discovery. You were meant to have satisfaction in taking all that you've been given and giving it for the glory of God. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord, my inmost being. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, my authentic self. Whatever it is, whatever you find, lay it on the altar. Give it away. And then he makes a commitment. I then will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises. Now this, I hearken back to the last couple of weeks we've talked about that. We, we sing because it is a, it is, it's probably one of the most terrifying thing, things that we as a church do, right? Because it's, it's easy to talk. It's really easy, the Bible tells us, to mumble, right? But when you sing at the top of your lungs, whoo, that's scary, right? And he says, I'm going to do that as long as I have my being. So there's like this litmus test. Do you have being? Do, do you, right? Are you is? Do you be? Are you? All right. If the answer is yes, then that is-ness, that being, is meant to be an invitation to praise, to sing, to declare the glory of God. So there you go. That's how we're introduced to what praise really is. 
It's something the people of God exhort and even command one another to do, because we need to, right? There's so many, I shared this with you before. It's, it's one of the greatest gifts this church offers to me. I come into this room on a Sunday morning. I have the wrong motives. My heart's not in it. I don't really want to do this. And a group of people say, no, 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 no. No, no, there is a God who is worthy. You better praise him. You will praise him. I shared with you a few weeks ago. And there are rocks waiting in the wings to take your place if you refuse. But then there's sometimes where I have to look in, my de- in the depths of my soul, and I, have to, I don't know, I have to urge, like, I don't, I don't want to, I want to praise myself. I want to retract into myself. And, and the psalmist says, no, the language of faith is you look at the depths of your soul, and sometimes you have to give your soul a pep talk. Soul, get up. You hear David do this elsewhere. Why are you, he asks questions, right? Like a multiple personality. Like, why are you so downtrodden, soul? Hope in the Lord, Right? And we're going to praise and sing to God as long as we exist. In one way or another, our existence will testify, will bear witness to the glory of God. We'll come back to that at the end. So then he pauses for just a moment and, and he says, by the way, you're going to be tempted to praise other things. And so the next imperative, the next command, he just says, do not put your trust in princes, quite literally rulers, Do not trust in, literally, earthly powers. In a son of man, right? That is is the language of Genesis now. The language of being made of dust, and his breath will depart, he will return to the dust. That's a son of man, literally a human one. That's where you get kind of the picture of Jesus Christ, especially in, in the prophetic language of the Old Testament and the Gospels fulfilled the Son of Man, the human one, the human, the one in whom we understand even what it means to be human, that is Jesus Christ. But, but ah, Son of Man, be careful. In your deepest being, trust in God as creator. Do you hear the kind of the language here? He, this is the God who we find real hope. Verse 6, he's God, the God who created all things. Everything comes from God. But then not only does God create all things as if he might just like create it and just kind of let it go, but he cares for all things. And, and then he's actively caring for, he's an active caretaker of what he created. The people that he called into being, it does not abandon, but instead he brings and executes justice, gives them sustenance, sets the prisoners free. We'll get to that in just a moment. But there's a picture of right trust in the God who creates and the God who redeems. And, and we're introduced to think about that by considering what it means to trust in lesser things, created things. Quite literally, we do not look to earthly deliverance because it cannot save. You see that? In verse 3. And it will die. You see that in verse 4. Anything that dies, anything that is subject to death, you and I are meant to have a good deal of skepticism toward. It's never meant to captivate the depths of our soul. I I want to just kind of digress for just a moment. When he commands us not to trust in princes, rulers, like earthly leaders, earthly personalities, earthly, that is, sons of humanity, daughters of humanity, that ultimately can't save you, in whom there is no salvation, verse 3, and then in the end, they're going to be dead. They're going to be buried. 
I want to invite you just extend a little grace to me. This is something that in this, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this, maybe more than I should, and I hope you, you don't have to agree with everything I'm about to say, but I just want to speak to you as a pastor who loves you, and I care about your souls. I care about your souls so much that I don't mind offending you. I've shared this with, like, I remember early on, someone was like, well, that really stepped on my toes, and I was like, oops, I was aiming for your soul. <laughs> and and it's because I genuinely, first of all, the, the scripture says, as a pastor, those of you who are members of our church, I have to give an account for your soul. But I care about your soul, and I care about what your life says about the state of your soul. And so I just want to speak to this as best I can, as humbly as I can, and, just, and propose to you a warning, a concern of mine. I haven't known quite how to put it into words, but I don't think that in good conscience I can walk through this psalm before the Lord and not point this out. We are obsessed with heroes and celebrities. We are desperate for heroes and celebrities. We're desperate. And we will look to, you know, God have mercy on all of you, comic books to find them even. Right? We will look to Tolkien or, right, or, you know, Harry Potter. Like We want a hero. We're desperate for them. And we want to put our hopes and dreams into a hero more than anything else. There are TV channels devoted to it. We can't talk about sports without trying to decide who's the best and who's the GOAT. We can't talk about anything. We can't talk about celebrities, movies, food. We can't talk about any of those things without trying to figure out what the best is. And we're so narcissistic and entitled about it. Right? I've shared this with you before when somebody's like, hey, how was that new restaurant? They're like, well, it didn't blow me away. And I'm like, that's the standard? Every meal for the rest of your life has to blow you away? We're obsessed with the best. And we are obsessed with making people and heroes into the best. This last couple of weeks has been one of the best examples of that, right? Right, the Olympics. We see that it's a weird thing. And we're obsessed with, like, who's the best? And how, does they, how do they represent us? And how do they represent our interests? And, and it stirs in us, I believe, something that God actually implanted that the de desire to see the world through a hero is a God-given drive. And the problem the psalmist tells us is not that we want heroes. The problem is that we settle for weak and dead heroes. We can't talk about presidents without comparing. We can't talk about movements or ideas without comparing. We're so desperate to crown a prince we're so desperate to make a ruler or a hero out of every category or topic that we can think of. I believe it's our way of coping with the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world. And down deep, we're hoping for a deliverer. We're hoping for a savior. We're hoping for a hero. Right? Did you feel some of that in the Olympics? I mean, there's one, I, my favorite, again, neither here nor there. My, uh, I don't ever want to like put a view on you, but just kind of stop for a minute and go, hey, what'd you learn about that? I love, I love, in our house, um, we love Simone Biles. And I just love how she just kind of, she's going to mess up our thoughts about this, isn't she? Right? And, and, and I, I confess to you, like, there's, there's that, I, I want my guy to win. I want my girl to win. I want my team to win. And it becomes visceral, doesn't it? I have good grief. I was, okay, uh, this, I was watching uh, two weeks ago dressage. This is an Olympic sport. Yeah. 
And it's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's like, it's like dance battle for horses. <laughs> and, and it's a French word that literally means discipline, right? Even the event itself is un-American, right? <laughs> just, just say it. Just say it like dressage. Like it's, do you even dressage, right? <laughs> and it's these horses that are trained. I think it's probably cruelty, um, even though it's really cool. But then the horses do this thing, and then the people stand on the podium and take the medals. And that's just for the, just for the, on behalf of the horses, that's just not fair. <laughs> so I'm watching this sport that I don't think should be a sport. I don't even think is a sport. But you know one of my first thoughts when it came on? I wonder how the Americans are doing. Right, in a sport that I'm, I'm not even sure Americans should be doing. Like, I don't... And if you own a horse that dances, I, I, I want to apologize. I want to ride it. I want to know what that's like. It's, maybe it's amazing, and I'm just missing out, right? But in a sport that I don't care about I, I, at all, and here's, here's what I found out. The, the Americans actually did better this year than they've done in, like a, in a long series of Olympics in dressage. <laughs> I'll try not to say that again. But down deep, even though I was like, I don't care about this, my first thought was like, but, are, but am I winning? Are my, is my people winning? And I want to like, contend to you, the human heart is desperate for heroes, celebrities, winners that we can hope in, trust in, bank on. And what I don't want to do is to tell you to stop doing that. What I want to do what the psalmist does and say, you ought to stop doing that in places that cannot deliver that offer literally no salvation, and they will, as sure as, as, as sure as the character and nature of God, they will perish, and their plans will perish with them. Every person, every movement. And so he gets at our heart, doesn't he? We love to crown the king. And that obscures, the psalmist says, at least two things. One, it's how praiseworthy God is for creating all things. And two, how praiseworthy God is for holding them all together. There's a God who creates, he goes on to say, and he made heaven and earth and everything in them, but that wasn't enough. God actually holds them together. There's a God who cares over all things. And trusting in lesser things obscures those two things. Spurgeon puts it this way, that trusting in human beings is, is difficult because humans are more apt to help themselves than they are to help others. And we love not to be self-interested, but we can't help it. And we are not to look for earthly deliverance and earthly deliverers because they cannot save and they will die. Quite literally then, don't hope in things that die. That means for Christians that we don't expect too much from this world. We don't expect too much from it. Jesus puts it this way, that we should be intentional about living in this world, but we should store up treasures not in this world, where, right, where moth can eat and where a, steal, or a thief can steal, right? You get the idea? And rust can tarnish, but we store up treasures where? Eternally in heaven. And so we should never be all that joyful or all that discouraged by things that happen in this world. Because nothing in this world can save, and every single one of those things are going to die. Every empire... Every movement, every hero, you name it, death rules over them. And for us, as Christians, our citizenship is eternal. It's not in this world, 
It's under a king that is eternal and his eternal reign. And the false joys that run amok in this life are idolatry run amok. You see, we look to things smaller than God to feel safe or content. And that's why we feel the need to fight for them. That's why we feel their scarcity. We don't see, as we sing, the fount of blessings providing for us. We think the blessings are scarce and we have to fight for them. Whether it's power, influence, control, resources. And here's the hard part. In God's kindness... God will actually allow us to lose the things that we are trusting in more than Him. It is God's kindness that your hero will fail and die. Because ultimately, those things rob us of freedom. Isaiah 40 says it this way, the calling of Isaiah. A voice said, cry, and I said, right, you can hear I love this, like, here, like, Isaiah and other, other people in the Old Testament called. They, like, argue with God, like, whoa, 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 here's my excuses, right? He's like, well, what do you want me to say? What shall I cry? And this is what the Lord says Isaiah is to cry to the public. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass will wither, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. So here's my observation and concern for you, because I love you, I care about you. I want to have a clear conscience about this text where we're compelled not to trust in earthly princes. I already shared with you, most of our life is built around trying to raise up heroes and and, and celebrities, deliverers, false saviors. But here's what I also think, and I've watched this for a little bit, and I may be way off, but almost all of our current politics are just trusting in princes. Almost all of it. I would love for you to tell me that's not the case. There aren't loud public voices articulating a conservative political philosophy. I don't hear that. There aren't like loud, or like, you know, like, like if you're, unless that's you, if you're, if you're our, our era is William F. Buckley, let's talk. I want to, let's, let's make that happen, right? Right? And there aren't loud voices articulating like a progressive liberal political philosophy. What I hear in place of that is trust in princes. Trust in our prince, our team, and deify, demonize, dehumanize them. And friend, anything, anything that you will sacrifice righteousness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit for, is something you ought to repent of, not something you should brag about. And here's how you know that most of our current politics is just trust in princes. All it would take right now is for me to badmouth your prince and you'd be out of here. That's it. And you would abandon you would abandon the church of God that will outlast the gates of hell for a prince that cannot save and will rot in the grave. And that's how you know. Just pick your prince. I just think about it. Like, if, if, I, if I decide this is a sinful person who makes sinful decisions and is really awful, really, that you shouldn't hope in them, you should maybe, you know, 
In fact, beware of them because they want your absolute loyalty. Pick your prince. If I, if I brought their name to, to mind right now, here's the thing. You, like, and it could be a, a president, right? Right? Like Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. It could be your favorite blogger, your favorite Christian celebrity. You, pick, you have it, and that's your team. And if I, the minute I said that, guys, yeah, that's probably not biblical or helpful. You'd be like, I'm out of here. And you would show. Not that you know what is right, but that you are owned by a prince. And friend, it is God's mercy, it is God's kindness to pry your grip from that prince. And behold, the God of the universe who creates, sustains, redeems, and reigns forever and ever. And here's the thing, if I, if I like bash your prince, you would think I was at fault. For not worshiping, like the psalmist here, God rightly. When in fact, I just refuse to bow down to your prince. And the psalmist tells us that your trust in that prince will rob your soul of blessing. The psalmist tells us here that one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that you and I have in this world is that they can't pin us down to a prince. They can't pin us down. Right? Think about it. If they were like, hey, what's Connection Church like? If they were like, well, are they a conservative church? The most God-glorifying thing would be like, well, I can't really tell. They seem so jacked up about King Jesus, it's hard to really pin them down. Is that a liberal church? And they're like, I can't really tell. I, I don't hear that language. I hear, their, I hear their excitement for King Jesus so much, I'm not really sure. And one of the most awful things that the world can see and how the world would smell that we're of the world is that we look like the world. We have the language of the world. We have the heroes of the world. And we use the tactics of the world. And that's how the world can dismiss us because they're like, it's just another club. It's just, and, and the world doesn't need another one of those. And friend, one of the most powerful gospel witnesses that you and I have if, is that they can't tell who we're loyal to other than Jesus. The language of the Old Testament and the New describes that as the fear of man that grips us. The fear of what people will think. And the fear of what it means not to identify with a particular human. And I want to contend to you because I love you. I am worried. I don't know how Christians are supposed to be present in politics, but I'm worried that almost all of our current politics are just trust in princes. And I want you to be aware. I want you to be cautious. And I don't want you, hear me so clearly, I don't want you to give to anyone what belongs to Jesus. I don't want you to give it to your spouse, your family, your job, your profession, much less your political party or some person who will die. I just want you to give Jesus what he deserves. And as a result of just kind of observing, I hear most of the talk is about political princes. I want you to wade into the political sphere and have a faithful presence. But think of it, if, if the political sphere is who's your prince, then maybe the, the thing for you is to not wade into it. So one of the ways I would challenge you is like, if you had to, could you give up those things for a while? If I told you, don't listen to another word from this political person, this blog, right, this celebrity pastor, or this author, or I, if I just said, hey, give that up for a while, I'm going to introduce some. It's a, it's a thing Christians call abstinence. We abstain from things. It means we 
don't do them, right? Like, FOMO, I know, this will blow your mind. Sometimes you just intentionally miss out. And if I told you, like, abandon those things, if I said don't listen to that radio or, that, or don't watch that TV show or don't read the news or don't follow this, get off of Twitter, Facebook, whatever, if I told you abstain for that, even for the rest of your life, ask yourself how difficult that would be for you. And in, in so, insofar as it becomes difficult for you, I want you to hear the psalmist saying, it's God's kindness that's difficult, and I want you to know it's probably because you've trusted in thing that can't deliver. And so if you find yourself abandoning biblical compassion, biblical wisdom, understanding, temperance, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, if you find yourself losing those things, then friend, you have discovered a prince. <laughs> and it is God's mercy that you would abstain from them. I, I, I feel like there's a million examples of like how what we're talking about, right, whether it's right, race, Masks, vaccinations, you know, like it's, it's more about princes than it is anything else. Like I, did, it, I would love to hear the person that knew who Anthony Fauci was like 10 years ago. I, I didn't. I'm, I apologize. I should have I been more aware of like important epidemiologists. I didn't. Until all of a sudden, he was a prince to fight about, right? Does anybody remember hydroxychloroquine? Does anybody remember that? Yeah, how was, somebody tell me that wasn't about a prince, right? I, I feel like I could go on. I don't want you to do that. I, just, I love you. I don't, it's out there. Like if, you, if you don't smell this, come, I'll talk to you. I'd love to show you how what happens is, is that people are more loyal to their prince than they are to King Jesus. And, and here's one of the ways, especially, you see it here, that God executes justice for the oppressed. This is really cool. God has been like helping the oppressed and executing justice long before Karl Marx was in existence. Um, this is a biblical thing Christians ought to reclaim, but right now we're not very good at talking about justice. And that's okay. The Bible's going to help us through it. But here's one of the ways you know. If you like it, when people call for justice against them and, that, and those guys, but you don't like it when they call for justice against your guys, then you don't love justice. You love your prince. And friend, God exercises justice Look how God cares for the people who we're most likely to forget, the people we'd most want to ignore. And one of the ways you know if you've trusted in a prince is if you can find an excuse why a person's not really oppressed, not really hungry, not really incarcerated, not really blind, not really like bowed down or downtrodden or, or somehow like not wandering. If you can find a way to get around like exercising the love of God that adorns the gospel, then, then for it, you probably love a prince. Maybe the prince is you. I, that's, I usually like myself as a prince. That's just me. Maybe it's you. But here's what I find. Most people don't actually know or care about vaccines or votes or evidence or unborn babies or racial conciliation. Most people don't actually know or care about any of those things, but they know what their prince thinks about them. They care about their prince and their prince's victory. And they put so much trust in their prince that they can't even face reality of their prince's sin or their flaws or failures. And to be clear, I actually don't care about what you wearing a mask says about your politics. I actually I shared with, personally, I shared this with some of you guys during the election. You'd be insulted to find out how little I care about who you voted for. 
you'd be insulted. I pr- just don't even ask, because again, you're just going to be insulted. I don't care about what wearing a mask says about your politics. I care about what wearing a mask has revealed about your soul being in the grip of an earthly prince that can't save and will die. Now fill in the blank with whatever hot topic it is, right? Like there's a lot to choose from, okay? You'd be insulted to find out how little I care about those things. But I hope you would experience love because I care about what it says about the state of your soul and about the joy and the hope, the blessing, the deliverance, the sustenance that is granted to you and I from a good and better king. And most of our opinions are just used to prop up a prince. And so we look to God's deliverance because he saves. God redeems. You'll see from the rest of the psalm, God reigns forever. That's it. That's our hope. That's our joy. And so ask yourself, did I seek the Lord on this particular topic or issue? To what extent did I pray about this? Because any place where you and I listen to a person more than we listen to God is a place where we are trusting in a prince. And just that, like, did I seek the Lord in this? Did I seek the guidance of Christians who know and care for me? Or did I seek something else? And the place where you're listening to anything more than we listen to the Father is a place that we find is not going to find, we're not going to find salvation, it won't save, and it'll be dead soon. And the hard part is that Western Christianity is most awful when it convinces people they can have Jesus on the throne alongside an earthly prince. That's when we do the most damage. So now, what do we do instead? The psalmist gives us an answer. We praise the God of creation. We glorify the God who created all things, who sustains all things. We look to his deliverance because that's the character and nature of God. And he reigns for, we see in the very last verse, verse 10, forever, forever and ever. You can bank on him. You can trust in him. Maybe think of it this way. Our joy and our comfort comes from knowing that God is in control. I don't know what's about to happen. And your prince doesn't either. I don't know what's about to happen with this Delta or Lambda variant. I don't know. I don't know. I have no clue what's about to happen. But I know the one who does. And he's good. Look how good he is. He keeps faith forever. He executes justice for those who need it. He gives food to those who are hungry. He sustains them. He sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are downtrodden and bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but not the wicked. So friend, our hope is that there is a God behind all of this, and he's good. And this is what it's like. And even when our experience seems to tell us otherwise, and our experience says, no, 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 trust in this earthly thing, hope in this earthly thing, Join up with this earthly thing. Pledge your, pledge your complete allegiance to this earthly thing. And he says, That's, it's going to die. Instead, put your faith and put your trust in a God who's good, 
He executes justice for the oppressed. I, I didn't mention this the other day. The, the hardest thing about justice for us is that we don't actually want justice. We always want justice for them. But the hard part is if you cry out for justice and God brings it, he has to bring it on all of us. And so I, I'm just I'm like, just make sure you know that Christians kind of speak out of both sides of their mouth. We do want good things. We want righteousness to prevail. But there's, there's an overwhelming sense that we don't want justice. We want mercy. Right? Because if God does bring ju- justice and wipe out all the sinful people, that's a problem because I'm going to be somewhere in the top half of that list. Paul says, I'm the first among those. And so here's a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. God came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. So yes, bring justice, but God, don't bring it to me. Bring grace and mercy to me, justice to them. And hasn't it been the case that churches or denominations have shown their political loyalties recently? Have you been watching it? Maybe it's in your family. What, what had passed for loyalty to King Jesus is really just some kind of earthly loyalty. Have you heard it? And when people try to articulate what it means to be a Christian, they simply like articulate their political talking points. You heard that? Their issues that they're for or against, social movements that they're either for or afraid of. People can quote Tucker Carlson or Don Lemon, but they can't quote scripture. Right? Like, ask yourself this Could you take a break from that? <laughs> Could you sit this one out for the sake of your own soul? I know your soul's weary. It's, it's wearying. Right? Like, I only get you for like an hour, but like, I don't know, your news outlet gets you for hours this week, and that'll wear you out. You should take a break. There's a book I hear is full of life. If you can't sit it out, if you can't abstain, then you might have proved the psalmist's point. And that's sad. And you will think that this is about politics and not realize this is about your soul. Look, our joy and comfort ultimately is knowing that God is in control and he's good. I'm going to give you two kind of applications for right praise. One for the nature and the health of the church. And then one, I think, for your own soul. The sovereignty of God, Spurgeon says, is a soft pillow on which the weary can lay their heads. God is the source of all things we see here. God is the uncreated one. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need our help, and yet he invites us into it. He didn't create anything to gain anything. It was out of the overflow of his own perfection. I read a, a liturgist uh, some time ago that, that just made a long list of like, what seemed bizarre things, but they were just places I hadn't even thought about this. God is the sovereign over bears. God is the king of hummingbirds. He's the king of atoms. He's the king of canyons, of lakes, of rivers, of black holes, of supernovas, of, gal- of galaxies, of universes. There's not a place that you can think of that God isn't sovereign. And so we find out that God isn't just the creator of all these things, but the list of Psalms here is that he cares for things. He looks out for, he looks out for the people we would be most likely to ignore. And that's important because in sin... That's us. In sin, that's us. Did you hear the list? The people that God helps? Because in sin, we're starved in it. We're locked up in it. We're without sight in it. We're pressed down under it. We're unrighteous because of it. We're wandering in it. We're fatherless in it. We are ruined by it. We sang it just a moment ago. 
And yet Jesus, in his life and his ministry, was always showing favor. Did you catch it? Like the, the, the ends of the spectrum, right? You hear the language of the tax collector and the prostitute. Right? The people who were on the side of power and the people who were on the underside of power. And Jesus was, showed favor to the people who were starved, the people who were incarcerated, the people who were lost and blind and burdened. And we find out the good news, knowing that God is sovereign over all things and what he has done for us in Jesus is definitive and true, is that Jesus is the one who took our starvation. He took our chains. He took our blindness, our burdens, our unrighteousness, our wandering, our being cast out, our abandonment, our forsakenness, and our ruin. He took them all for us. Jesus did these things. He listened to the people who felt ignored. He healed those who needed restoration. He fed those who were hungry. 5,000 of them, in fact, on more than one occasion. And he associated with those of ill repute. He restored God's creation to its right place right back to its creator. And so that means that God cares for the trafficked. God cares for those in foster care. God cares for the abused. God cares for the abandoned, the voiceless, those who have been discriminated against. And we adorn the gospel when we do as well. It's part of our gospel witness. We commend the gospel to the world when we exercise this kind of care. It's part of our testimony. It's part of how we bear witness to our loyalty to another king. And as a result, we're exalted from the depths. So here's how this applies to the church. You see this picture of fearing God and fearing humans. Acts chapter 9 puts it this way. It's a story of Saul's conversion. And when Saul came back, this is how it was described. And when he came, or excuse me, when he had come to them, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all, hear that phrase, afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. This theme is called the fear of man. It's throughout the Old and New Testament. This idea that if you fear something other than God, it controls you. And you fear what people think or how you'll fit in or won't fit in with people. It owns you. It controls you. It is a form of worship. It is God over you. And that's how it began. Let's read on. Luke tells us this powerful little lesson for the church. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road, to, or on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but even, even though they were still seeking to kill him. So when, they brought, when, the, excuse me, when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So listen to this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's important for Luke. He told us that's where the, the disciples are going to go bear witness in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Had what? Peace. They were being built up, and they were walking what? In the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It, that is the church, did what? Multiplied. So just listen to the lesson, right? Luke, Luke doesn't tell this by accident. He says that under the fear of men, one thing happened. And under the fear of the Lord, did you hear what happened? Peace. Growth. 
multiplication. But under the fear of man, strife, shrinking, and division. Guess which one of those I can share with you statistically is happening in the church in America? Now guess why? So friend, I want Connection Church to multiply. <laughs> I want us to multiply churches. I want us to multiply disciples. I, again, I, I want us to, to multiply ministries for kids on September 12th and for youth and for college students who are in our city for just a few years before they're sent out to live on mission. I want to multiply ministries to the orphan, to the widow. You know, I want us to ministry and multiply as many ways as possible. Acts gives us one ingredient and one warning. And the, ingredient, and the ingredient that we need is fear of King Jesus. And the warning is fearing anything or anyone else. Here's the last encouragement I want to offer to you. Do you see what the psalmist was building? The psalmist in this psalm is putting to words the conclusion of the grand narrative toward which not, not toward which not only the Psalms, but all of Scripture has been pointing. A throne. That the Lord will reign for all time. Let me leave you with Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. These four living creatures that represent the kind of the might of humanity or the might of creatures and the might of creation. Each of these four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes. It's a, it's a metaphor for their strength and might and wisdom, right? Even under its wings, like eyes under the wings. Like that's it's crazy, right? They see it coming everywhere, right? That's the might of the might of the world is pictured here. And what were they doing? Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do you hear it? We trust in the King that reigns forever. He is created. He is redeemed. He is a sustainer. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. In case you forgot, the one who lives forever. Which one? The one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns. Do you, do you hear it? Do you hear the language of a prince? Do you hear it? They took their crowns. And they laid them before the throne. And they cried out, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. You hear it? Sounds like Psalm 146. That song, I don't know, this song's like 3,000 years old. And apparently it's going to be eternal old, right? Or, or like eternal, live for eternity. You receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and they have all their being. Friend, this story is the story that the psalmist is alluding to. This hallelujah chorus is not just in Handel's Messiah. It's in your life and mine. And we are commanded, praise God. No, really, you must. You absolutely must, from the depths of your soul, praise God from the depths of your innermost being. Don't praise earthly beings that can't save and will ultimately die. Because in the end, God created them, and God will redeem them, and God will reign forever. Hallelujah!
Now I want us to pray. And I want us to declare from the depths of our heart the praise that God deserves. The king that has power over death. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. God, we confess we just do not deserve all of your kindness. God, I pray that even now you would, you would take the words of the psalmist and impress them upon our very hearts. God, I confess to you, even, even just watching a, an event that's on the other side of the world, I, I, I still hope in earthly things. I, I secretly just want my team and my people to win. And I confess that, that that's just too small for eternity. So I ask that you would help us to loosen our grip on things of this world. Abstain from it if we must. And then live lives active and faithful in it in a way that adorns the good news of the redeeming king. God, if there's some in this room that maybe they wouldn't call themselves Christians, might they behold the the God who restores the downtrodden, the God who welcomes the outcast? The God who sets us free from the prisons of sin. The God who will make all things new. Might today be the day they profess faith. Might they trust in you as the one who will restore all things. God, would you make our church, that's something only you can do, would you make our church fearless in the world? Protect us from the strife that comes from Earthly loyalties. God, we confess we want to fight over them so much. Would you replace in us a sense of peace? By your Holy Spirit, guide our actions and decisions through uncertainty. Not because it's not difficult, but because we know that there is one who is certain. That you who have created all things and reign and restore, reign over and restore all things are good. And you're working these things for our good. Thank you that there is one who has power over death. Help us now to declare and praise faith and trust in him and in no other. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.